On this week's 51%, a musician talks about what she calls her new feminine EP. Teenage girls of color in ballet say this form of dance caters to white women. Dance is not for the European only white girls. It's for everybody. A mother speaks out about her missing son in the army while another woman offers support for families of missing service members. Plus, Dr. Jerry Burns talks about the home life during COVID. I'm Allison Dunn and this is 51%. American singer-songwriter Annie Mack does it all, from powerhouse blues to new Americana and beyond, highlighting her vocal presence and original songs. She released two new singles in 2020, Shadows of a Kingdom and Judge and Jury. Her new EP, Testify, was due out at the end of January. She is also featured in the book, 50 Women in the Blues. This story was produced by Dixie Trichel. I am a blues woman through and through because I'm so secure in my foundation. It allows me to step out and to embrace the different styles that I love. You know, I really want to honor that strong presence of being a black woman and having my voice and being a voice for others as well. My name is Annie Mack and I am a musician, mother of three and truth teller, writing music and performing music. My journey and path to being a vocalist is probably (laughs) one of the most humbling things for me. I have no previous training. I have no previous education. Didn't grow up in a musical family nor home. So I really do believe it was a tool and a platform given to me by universe. My new EP, Testify, is five songs of original music. The title track is called Testify, Shadows of a Kingdom, Get on the Train, Judge and Jury, and Walking Around to Testify is about having that long-standing faith. It's a mature faith where you believe and you know that change, you know, is coming and it's here and it's, it's what we pursue even if we don't see it. And it's a very female, divine feminine EP. When we went in to record the band for the EP Pestify, it was a day session. You know, that's where you go put the foundation down to all the songs, you knock it out. And with respect, none of us have been playing or touring or anything like that, you know. And so we went in already having a sacredness and respect and, you know, kind of reverence and excitement. And However, this is during the time of the George Floyd murder and the riots and the upheaval and things that need to change. I had already intended, obviously, to write from the perspective of a black woman celebrating new Americana and and telling these stories, but it was incredibly important to put out something from Minneapolis, St. Paul, Minnesota, that was strong and beautiful and honest and black.
I wrote Shadows of a Kingdom. My daughter, she was fighting a battle that there was nothing I could do. You know, this was the first time mama couldn't step in. And that was one of her defining moments of stepping into being a woman, realizing the power that she has and the ability to overcome. And so there was that. And then it's also, you know, universally written for women when we, we all have to step into those spaces of sovereignty and no longer afraid to take up space. And just realizing that, you know, we don't have to apologize for our presence. We don't have to tiptoe around. Her thoughts and her body were sacred, no longer afraid to take up space. Her work had begun long ago, in the depths of my soul. Another tune is called Judge and Jury. I wrote that for the Me Too compilation with Sarah Morris, a really great project of amazing women, queer, non-binary. It was about writing from a female perspective of the Me Too movement. And it's a localized, you know, Minneapolis project to raise money for Planned Parenthood. Want to do my spirit harm, trying your best to shame me. And that's about facing judgment as a woman, choosing what we want to do with our body and, you know, dealing with a lot of self-righteous people and what it means to meet women where they're at, but just basically judging them for, you know, making choices in reference to our body. You're not the judge and jury of me. You're not the judge and jury. And a lot of women I talk to have said that it's a different feeling when you walk around loving yourself, understanding your worth and knowing what you bring to the table and and knowing what you have to offer and that you are worthy. I'm a black woman. I deserve to be respected. I deserve to be acknowledged and appreciated. I am worthy. Those are the things that motivate me. That was singer-songwriter Annie Mack in a piece produced by Dixie Trichel for KFAI. And now we hear from some teens who talk about their experiences as girls of color as ballet dancers. Ariel Mejia produced this piece called Shades of Beauty. Um, Nutcracker season, which for most dancers means going through a ton of point shoots that have to be dyed, can be stressful. During one of my last Nutcracker seasons, I went through about two pairs of point shoes in three months, meaning I constantly had to dye a new pair and make sure they were perfectly matched to my skin tone. One time, during one of our run-throughs before the opening night, the costume director pulled me aside, telling me how I needed to get better at dyeing my point shoes and how they looked nothing like my skin color. I was so enraged because there are no tights that match my skin color, nor is there a foundation that is perfect to me either. I had to then go and quickly touch up and re-dye my point shoes with less than four hours left until the show. Nutcracker season never ceases to make me feel like I will never be completely welcomed in the ballet community because of my color. The POC in the ballet community is 
for me necessarily not as bad as other dancers especially since i am a white passing latino being a dancer of color specifically a ballet dancer um which is like an all-white environment um i guess there's like perks and downsides but one of the perks of being a ballet dancer um of color is that I get a lot of attention just for the fact that I don't look like everybody else. With me being a black ballerina, a lot of people use that to invalidate my blackness or assume that I'm whitewashed or I'm trying to be something I'm not. And when I tell people like my family and other people that I do ballet, it comes to a little bit of a shock since there aren't many specifically from my culture that do ballet. People are surprised that I do ballet and not African hip hop or jazz like they expect. When I first started dancing, I joined a majorette team, which is a high-energy, synchronized, rhythmic dance move derived from the South, usually performed by a group of black females. I was the only, quote-unquote, white girl there, but even at that age, I realized how non-inclusive the dance world was. Whenever we had performances, there'd always be a problem with getting tights to match everyone's skin color, having to quickly dye tights before performances, having to dye shoes. I've never been excluded because, once again, I'm a white passing Latino. I've been able to experience just as much opportunities as other dancers. And being a dancer of color or um, a black dancer um, in the ballet world specifically, um, I when I'm included, I feel excluded. And I guess I should, like, elaborate, but, um, like... I can never tell if I'm there because I bring diversity or I'm there because I'm talented. I've been excluded when it comes to trying to buy things like shoes and tights in my color. I can't always just buy it online like most people can. I have to always go into store and, you know, compare colors and see what fits me best. Body image, um, which... The whole ballet aesthetic is around European features and how um, really skinny, small chest, um, long legs, um, short torso, um, long neck, high cheekbones. That's like the whole ballet aesthetic, but that's all European features. And um, it's just being held to like that expectation or I guess it's not really being held to the expectation but holding myself to that expectation is unrealistic and not being able to buy shoes of my color makes me feel as if I don't really belong like I'm only being accepted because people feel that they have to and not because they want to to dye my point shoes just a little bit tanner than the regular pink ballet shoes or pink tights it feels a bit off knowing that I have to look a certain way, but I understand that you need to be able to do it for a professional setting. After coming back to dance, but this time in the ballet world, I had to wear flesh tone tights and flat shoes at the studio I danced at, so I was constantly looking for my color. I had to buy two different sets just for the fact that I changed color during the summer and winter time. The best example of how exclusive the tight color range and point shoe colors were when I first got point shoes and I had to pancake them for Nutcracker. Pancaking, pancaking your point shoes is when you color your point shoes, usually with foundation, to get them closer to your skin color. With Nutcracker being such a huge performance, which means everything has to be perfect, including your tights and shoes. 
The process of dyeing your shoes takes about 48 hours, and depending on how well you do, you either have to put some touch-ups or make them a little darker. While trying to dye my point shoes to match my tights, it was incredibly frustrating, having my tights and point shoes being two different colors and not exactly matching my own skin tone. Because of that, I got called out by costume directors saying that my tights weren't my color. You need to get better foundation and shades. And then the way I dye my point shoes is I just like pour a little bit of the foundation on the shoe and then spread it out with the toothbrush. And um, I always start with the shoe itself, then I go in with the elastics. And I personally wear one elastic, but um, some people can wear two. And then I go into the ribbons. And the entire process takes me maybe an hour, hour and a half per shoe. Um, and then drying, um, it takes like two days. I mean, you can wear them after like a day, but like you'll get like pancake on the floor. And pancake is basically the foundation coming like off of your shoe and like going onto the floor because it's not fully dry. So, yeah. Overall, being a dancer of color in the ballet world has made me realize how exclusive tights companies and point shoe companies are and how there needs to be a change to make everybody feel included. Because dance is not for the European only white girls, it's for everybody. The story is from a youth radio program that is part of a Chicago-based nonprofit, After School Matters. The Army has come under fire for its treatment of missing soldiers since the April death of Specialist Vanessa Guillen at Fort Hood, Texas. For years, families and advocates have said the Army is too quick to treat soldiers as deserters when they go missing. Now the service is rethinking its approach when troops don't show up for duty. Carson Frame reports for the American Homefront Project. 19-year-old Private Dakota Stump disappeared during a field exercise on Fort Hood in 2016, and the Army declared him absent without leave. His mother, Patrice Franklin, says investigators were slow to act and assumed Stump had left the base by choice. I just feel that they did not take it seriously. They all would tell me, you know, we're, we're doing everything possible uh, to locate your son and bring him home safely. It was almost like they didn't want to come out and say, we think your kid's goofing off. As it turns out, Stump hadn't run off. He'd crashed his car into a wooded area on base. Weeks later, troops stumbled onto his vehicle during a land navigation exercise, and the young man's body was nearby. Franklin says the Army has a wrong-headed and ill-equipped approach to missing soldiers. You know, I just I think that is so important to me to have just a team of trained individuals that know how to, to act quickly and to start actually searching for these people and researching their bank cards and, you know, the debit cards. I mean, it's just, it's, it's all so important. You know, let's find them before they, something bad happens. Advocates say Stump's situation fits into a pattern. When service members turn up missing, leaders tend to treat them like deserters and put a low priority on finding them. But sometimes soldiers fail to show up because they've taken their own lives or been involved in accidents or foul play, like Private Gregory Morales, whose body was found in a shallow grave near Fort Hood this summer, 10 months after the Army declared him AWOL without a thorough search. Diana Danis is an advisor with the Women Veterans Social Justice Network. They presume the worst of the individual rather than presuming that there is something nefarious that has occurred with them uh, at the onset. 
As of the end of August, there were 830 AWOLs throughout the Army worldwide, according to ABC News. More than 1,000 are listed on the Army's deserter rolls. The former Army MP Maggie Haswell doesn't think they've all left by choice. Seven years ago, she founded the Facebook group Warriors Aftermath and Recovery to support families of missing service members. Haswell says Army investigators often don't try to understand what soldiers may have been going through when they disappeared. So you have to think like them. And to do that, you have to know their state of mind and you have to know them as a person. And that comes with getting information from friends, from coworkers, from family members, um, all kinds of things. So this is not something that the Army Now, under pressure from families and lawmakers, the Army says it will issue new guidance. When soldiers fail to report for duty, their commanders should consider them missing and take immediate steps to find them. The service also plans to start tallying soldiers who disappear for unknown reasons. Army leaders haven't released more details and refused an interview request. Army Secretary Ryan McCarthy said in October that the loss of Vanessa Guillen had been felt widely. Her loss has been felt in our formations and across the nation at large. We must be accountable, and we must act. This year, and its series of events, has hardened our resolve to create enduring change. While advocates say the new policy represents progress, they also question its staying power. Some doubt the Army will ever come forward with specifics. Diana Danis. They're putting a rule in place that that they kind of have to do because they looked terrible. It always looks terrible when it's more important to you to find a rifle than it is to find a person. Meanwhile, the other services haven't announced any changes to their policies. Some congressional leaders are calling for an audit of all the branches to find out how they track and look for missing service members. I'm Carson Frame in San Antonio. This story was produced by the American Homefront Project, a public media collaboration that reports on American military life and veterans. Women who do not fit female stereotypes are less likely to be seen as victims of sexual harassment, and if they claim they were harassed, they are less likely to be believed. That's according to research published by the American Psychological Association. Dr. Cheryl Kaiser of the University of Washington and a co-author of the study published in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology says sexual harassment is pervasive and causes significant harm, Yet far too many women cannot access fairness, justice, and legal protection, leaving them susceptible to further victimization and harm within the legal system. Kaiser says the research found that a claim was deemed less credible and sexual harassment was perceived to be less psychologically harmful when it targeted a victim who was less attractive or did not act according to the stereotype of a typical woman. Meantime, preliminary research shows that antibodies to SARS-CoV-2 have been detected in new mom's early breast milk called colostrum. The research was led by a University of Massachusetts Amherst breast cancer researcher and a University of Massachusetts Medical School obstetrician-gynecologist. Scientists say the antibodies were detected in 14 of 15 women who had tested positive for COVID-19 before giving birth. The lead author of the not-yet peer-reviewed research says the immune response was detected in colostrum of women who had their first positive test and symptoms more than four months before delivery, as well as those who had their first positive test at delivery and were asymptomatic. Breastfeeding by women infected with SARS-CoV-2 is endorsed by the World Health Organization and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And available evidence suggests breast milk rarely contains live coronavirus and is not likely to spread the disease to babies. 
The extent to which the COVID-19 antibodies found in colostrum provide immunity to babies is not yet clear. And Dr. Jerry Burns has grown comfortable with her newly named syndrome. There is almost nothing like having a cup of hot cocoa on a cold and rainy afternoon. Sitting down in the living room near the wood stove and raising the blue pottery mug to my lips is a moment of delicious anticipation. Even before sipping, I imagine the smooth, silky sweetness sliding down my throat and warming me from the inside out. Chocolate comfort food. Who could ask for more? But what if, unbeknownst to me, someone transforms my innocent drink into a steaming mug of Aztec hot chocolate? Then, the warmth awaiting my tender insides would include the fiery heat of cayenne pepper. Jarring is one way to describe the surprise, especially so since I never eat anything spicy hot. When your tongue and psyche expect silky sweetness and get a jolt of heat, it shakes you up a bit. And that's the kind of thing that happened to me when I heard about the effectiveness of the new COVID-19 vaccine one November day in the scary year of 2020, I felt hugely relieved and grateful that a little vaccine has the power to protect people's health, bring back the economy, pop kids back into schools, put Broadway back on Broadway, and all the other positives that will come when the pandemic finally ends. I will stop worrying about loved ones who are at higher risk if they get coronavirus. I will go back to performing my storytelling for in-person audiences and teaching college classes with students in the same room as me. We will be free to meet, travel, and to even hike in the Hudson Valley without half of New York City on the trails. Life will go back to relative normalcy. Now, thinking about all that is way better than a cup of cocoa. And while I felt relief when I heard about the effectiveness of the new vaccine, I felt something else, too. Something like cayenne pepper in chocolate. I recognized the feeling, a familiar one on the corona coaster of emotions that I've experienced all through the pandemic. Anxiety. Yes, the idea of the COVID-19 vaccine made me feel anxious, but the anxiety went beyond concern about the vaccine's safety. My anxiety was about change, about having to be with people, about going to stores, about emerging from the little cocoon that I've been living in. I've heard that normalcy could return maybe by spring, surely by summer. And my reaction was, gulp? That's too soon. Like, what? I was chatting with my dad and told him about it. I said, I mean, I want the world to go back to normal, but I'm afraid. Forget about fear of the virus or the vaccine. I'm afraid about being around people and having to be on. I like being home. It turns out that he was feeling the same. He has luxuriated in going shopping, doing banking, and navigating his life in the world from the comfort of his bed. Maybe it's a variant of Stockholm Syndrome, he said. Huh. It made a weird sort of sense. Stockholm Syndrome, as defined by Merriam-Webster, is 
the psychological tendency of a hostage to bond with, identify with, or sympathize with their captor. Now, while I don't identify with the pandemic, I have bonded with the stay-at-home idea much more than I like or realize. Instead of Stockholm Syndrome, maybe this should be called stay-at-home syndrome. I mean, minimized social contact during the pandemic has been very important. But the unintended consequence for me is that it's brought out every vestige of introvert that I have. Thinking about seeing people regularly, to socialize again, to work in the same spaces as others, how will I do it? As my thoughts raced about the upcoming vaccine, I imagined some of my friends who suffer from working and staying at home. Unlike me, they have not bonded with their captor. When deemed safe to do so, they will bound out of the house like puppies dying to go out for a walk. And me? I will cower in my puppy crate, staring at the void, afraid to step into it. My dad feels the same sort of trepidation as I do. Now, I imagine we're not the only ones who will need some re-entry wisdom. I mean, scuba divers don't just rise up from the depths to the surface of the water. They do it in stages to prevent getting the bends. I imagine that like scuba divers, people will have to be careful in the initial stages of re-entry to normalcy to be sure we remain safe from illness and we must figure out how to emerge from the stay-at-home cocoon or prison, depending on your perspective, into the social milieu. While there's still time, I'm going to start thinking about how I can work with my stay-at-home syndrome before the vaccine does its work. And my patient husband, who does all the shopping because I just can't, says, Okay, Jerry, it's your turn to scour the planet for cleaning supplies. Will I? Can I? I fervently hope I can overcome stay-at-home syndrome so I can shop for cocoa and make a pot of hot chocolate to share in person, with friends, and I will even offer them cayenne. Dr. Jerry Burns is a storyteller, writer, and educator living in New York's Hudson Valley. You can find her at storycrafters.com. Burns also is an adjunct professor in the Department of Communication at the State University of New York at New Paltz. That's our show for this week. Thanks to Tina Rennick for production assistance. Our executive producer is Dr. Alan Shartok. Our theme music is Glow in the Dark by Kevin Bartlett. This show is a national production of Northeast Public Radio. If you'd like to hear this show again, sign up for our podcast or visit the 51% archives on our website at wamc.org. This week's show is number 1644.